In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee this coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you... I am well pleased. 
Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josiak, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosan, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliel, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Sham, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Edoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time.
for uh, completing what was quite a, a long reading with some tricky parts to it, including that very long genealogy. So, well done. Thank you very much. Let me pray for us before we look further at this passage of Scripture together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this historical narrative today of those events 2,000 years ago, and we also think about how they fit together in your unfolding purposes revealed throughout the Old Testament era. And we pray that we would make those connections which the author of this gospel intended us to make, and we would see with clearer eyes uh, the perfection and wonder of your plan fulfilled in Lord Jesus Christ, and the perfection and wonder of Jesus in particular, and that we would be moved as a result to worship him more wholeheartedly and to trust him more deeply. Amen. So, we're continuing on our overview journey and we now arrive in the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. And Luke chapter 3 opens in 30 AD. At 450 years has elapsed since the era of Nehemiah, which we looked at last week. And in that 450 years, uh, basically, uh, the situation for the people of Judah has not changed. Uh, they have spent most of that time under the rule of various foreign powers. And they are currently under the power of the Roman Empire. Uh, did you notice, of course, the historical marker in Luke chapter 3, verse 1? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah. So the Romans are in town. And in Luke chapter 3, uh, he indicates that the events he is recording represent a significant turning point in this salvation history arc we've been following. Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 40, we saw God promised to come to his people to save them from exile. And now Luke links the preparatory work of John the Baptist to that very prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. Luke 3 verse 3. He, that is John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And so with the coming of John the Baptist, events are now set in motion for God's rescue to be enacted. Uh, John is the forerunner to the Lord, the rescuer. So the first question is this. How does John prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah? Uh, John is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, what was the message of the Old Testament prophets? Well, of course, they pointed to the problem of sin being primary. They were saying, this is your biggest problem. Uh, turn back to God. Uh, the message of the Old Testament prophets was also one of judgment and rescue after the judgment. And John's message was no different. Although this time, 
the promise of rescue had a ringing sense of imminence. Uh, Firstly, he seeks to get the people to see their need for the Lord who would come after him. Because, you see, unless they see their need for the Lord, they are not going to be ready for the Lord. And so John strives with every fibre of his being to convict the people of their sinfulness and their deep need for forgiveness. Uh, John's ministry uh, embodied three key components, uh, two key components, baptism and repentance. Uh, Firstly, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, the water washing over the body was just a symbol. It was a symbolic way of saying, as we saw in the kids' talk, I want my heart to be washed. My heart needs to be cleansed of its sin. And secondly, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, We know, don't we, that uh, repentance is this 180-degree handbrake turn in our lives. It's this active turning away from sin and resolving hereafter to live the Lord's way. And John was very clear. uh, The desire for a changed heart had to be underwritten by a changed, repentant life. You see, the people were not ready for the Lord if they merely uttered insincere, contrite words but produced no fruit of change in their lives. Chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The people were not ready for the king if they didn't see the extent of their own sin. The people were not ready for the king if they felt they could rely on their own pedigree rather than pleading for forgiveness. Chapter 3, verse 8. John continues, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, firstly then, uh, John reminds people of their need for the Messiah and secondly, he reminds people of what the Messiah will be like. Firstly, he will be incomparably great. Now, in his day, uh, John the Baptist did have great authority and stature. And that was why uh, the masses flocked to him in the desert. And yet John's gravitas was nothing compared to the one who was to come after him. Chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Does this promise of the Holy Spirit ring any bells for you? Uh, We've seen it before, back in through the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 36 verse 27, God says this, 
at some future point, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That was God's promise to his people through the ministry of the prophet Ezekiel. So Jesus will be the means by which God's reforming spirit is poured out into the hearts of his people. Not only will the Lord who comes after John be incomparably great, uh, he is the one who will save but also judge. He will perform this dual function of saving his people and judging those who are not his people. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat, that is his people, into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff, that is those who are not his people, with unquenchable fire. The words of John the Baptist are timeless. You see, the words of John the Baptist prepare you and I to be ready for Jesus. And without a sense of our own sinful depravity, we will not see our need for Jesus. Without a deep conviction of our sinfulness, our words of contrition to God will only be skin deep. And without a deep conviction of our sinfulness, we may be tempted to rely on the pedigree of our Christian heritage or our good works. And yet, the more we see the sinful state in all its stinky, slimy blackness, the more we appreciate all that Jesus is and all that he has done and all that he needs to do for us. You see, humanity's hopeless, sinful state has been a recurring theme in this Bible overview series. Uh, Maybe the emphasis on it has appeared somewhat excessive, and yet the reality is that actually we have given it less airtime than the Old Testament does. You see, it is healthy for us to more deeply understand the state of our sinful hearts. And that's not to depress us, but to empower us to marvel more at what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and to deepen faith and trust in him alone. So we've seen firstly uh, the work of John the Baptist who prepares the way for the king. Next we're going to see that Jesus himself is the spirit anointed true son of God and we're going to see this through his baptism. Uh, Jesus comes and he presents himself to John for baptism and of course he's not undergoing a baptism for the repentance of sins because he is sinless. Rather, his baptism is his commissioning as the Messiah. And in Jesus' baptism, uh, two aspects of his identity are revealed. Chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying... Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
Uh, the first thing we see here is that Jesus is the spirit-anointed king in the line of David. You see, at last we have the promised spirit-anointed king from David's family. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it said this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And that is what we see the Spirit resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Spirit-anointed King in the line of David. He is the one who will rescue God's people and rule them forever. But we see something else of Jesus' identity in the baptism of, him, of Jesus. Uh, not only is he the Spirit-anointed King, but he is also the Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 22, again, the voice from heaven. Uh, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, this theme of sonship is incredibly significant. For this is not the first time that God has said in the Bible that he has a son. There are two other significant uses of the title, the Son of God, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, the first was uh, Adam. He was the Son of God. Uh, maybe you're wondering why on earth we had that incredibly long and seeming laborious genealogy right in the heart of this historical narrative. Well, it's making a very important point. Jesus is the Son of, ultimately, Adam. Uh, let me, I'm not going to read it all out. You'll be relieved to hear. Uh, I'll pick up at the very end. Chapter 3, verse 38. Jesus was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. You see, Luke's placement of this long genealogy between Jesus' baptism and the tem temptation narrative is at first puzzling. What's the point? Why bother? But when we view this passage through the lens of sonship, everything becomes clear. At the baptism, God acknowledges Jesus as his son. And in the desert, Satan challenges Jesus to demonstrate his sonship. At chapter 4, verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the son of God. At chapter 4, verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God. You see, the genealogy identifies Adam as the Son of God and the father of the human race. And yet Adam was a failed Son of God. And Adam ultimately corrupts the human race. And therefore... The temptation narratives set up this question. Will Jesus fail? Will this son of God perform better than Adam, the failed son of God? But Adam was not the only son of God in view here. 
because Israel is also referred to as the Son of God. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, this is what God says to Moses to say to Pharaoh. Uh, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go. So you see, it's no coincidence that Jesus' timing of testing in the desert lasts for 40 days because it's setting up a deliberate parallel to the events 1,500 years earlier. 1,500 years earlier, Israel, the Son of God, was also in the desert. In her case, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And for Israel, it was also a time of testing. Would they trust God as the Son of God or not? So you see, the temptation narrative doesn't just compare Jesus with Adam, but also Jesus with Israel. Will Jesus fail like Israel had in the desert? Uh, Will this Son of God be any different to the previous failed sons of God? So how does he fare? Well, uh, unlike Adam and Israel, Jesus doesn't sin when tempted by Satan. Uh, All three might be called sons of God, but they are very different sons of God. As the voice says from heaven in uh, Luke 3.22, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son who pleases God, where all previous sons displeased God. Jesus is the son through whom God will do all that he has planned and all that he's promised. Uh, One way of viewing uh, the Bible's story is to see it as the quest for the true people of God. Uh, Who will love God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength? Who will perfectly honor and worship God? Another way of posing the question is, who will not fall into sin? Firstly, consider Adam. Adam had it all. Adam was created by God in his own image. He was God's son, enjoying all the blessings of Eden. And yet Adam succumbed to temptation. He failed to honor and to trust God as he should. As a result, neither Adam nor his descendants, the human race, were the people that God intended. And yet Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus fulfills all that Adam should have fulfilled. Like Adam, Jesus is also the father of a humanity, a new humanity, Ultimately, a sinless humanity. Look at Romans 5, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the Lord Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Do you see? Jesus establishes the humanity that God intended all along. 
In the temptation narratives, we get a glimpse of Jesus' victory over sin in his life. And we know, of course, that he continues to live this victorious, sinless life every day of his life on earth. Jesus' sinlessness shows that he is completely different from every other member of humanity. And it points to Jesus inaugurating a different new humanity. Adam's sin caused the fall and led to all his descendants sinning. And now, as Jesus begins his ministry, he does what Adam failed to do. And he does this to show that he and his descendants will be what Adam and his descendants failed to be. They will be the people of God who will one day live in God's special place, the new creation, under God's good rule in sinless perfection. Not only is there this link to Adam, but also there's this link to Israel, which we can follow through. Because you see, Jesus also fulfilled all that Israel pointed towards. Uh, Do you remember what God said to Israel after giving them his law and covenant through Moses? Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, then out of all the nations... Uh, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You see, God had said that if Israel obeyed him, uh, they would be his treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. Uh, They would inherit all the blessings promised in the covenant with Abraham. Uh, They would enjoy God's presence and they would be the means by which others did as well. We know, of course, that they didn't obey him. And yet, Jesus did. Jesus perfectly keeps God's law. Jesus perfectly fulfills the requirements of the covenants given through Moses. And in so doing, Jesus inherits all the blessings promised in the covenant with Abraham. Jesus becomes the rightful heir to all of God's blessings. But there is yet another dramatic development in the New Testament as we follow this theme of inheritance. You see, when somebody puts their faith in Christ, in God's eyes, something legally changes. They become legally joined to Christ. And they become legally entitled to all the blessings that Christ has inherited by virtue of his perfect life. Uh, The technical term is that when somebody puts their faith in Christ, they become a co-heir. Romans 8 verse 17. Now, if we are children, uh, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Heirs who inherit all the blessings promised to Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you can see how vital faith in Jesus is. It's the means by which we become legally joined to Jesus in God's eyes. 
And it's the means by which we become co-heirs with Christ. And without faith in Christ, we remain estranged from Christ and from God, and we do not inherit the promised blessings. But through faith in Christ, we become members of God's true people, the chosen people of God, the people that Israel should have been. And of course, you'll be familiar with the words of the Apostle Peter because he reveals that the promises to Israel in Exodus 19 are actually fulfilled in the New Testament church. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you, speaking to Christians, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So a few words in conclusion. At last, God has come to rescue his people from exile. As we saw back in Nehemiah, the return to the land of Canaan was not the return promised in the prophets. None of the promises that the prophets made were fulfilled in that return. And now we can understand why. The reason is that that return, or the return about which the prophets spoke, was not the return from exile in Babylon. Rather, it was the return from exile in Eden. Jesus initiates the rescue that the whole of God's revelation and all his actions have been pointing to. It is the start of the reverse of the curse. In his baptism, Jesus walked onto the world stage. In his baptism, Jesus announces that he himself is humanity's new champion. He is the second Adam. And he will blaze a trail that all other humans thus far have failed to tread. And he does so in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and all the Old Testament covenants. And as we step back and we locate Jesus in the context of biblical history, the magnitude of what he accomplishes becomes ever clearer. Jesus is unique in human history. He is the only one to live a sinless life. He establishes himself as the sinless Son of God. Are you moved to a deeper sense of wonder and worship as you consider Jesus' sinless perfection? He lived the perfect life that you or I could never live. And he lived it for me and for you. So that when we put our faith in him, that perfect record becomes credited to our account. And in living that perfect life, Jesus establishes a new humanity and a new chosen people of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what Jesus has done for me and for you, if we're trusting in him. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for keeping your promises to send the Messiah. 
the Son of God, your Son, who would be the perfect Son of God, the one who would succeed where previous sons had failed, both Adam and Israel. Uh, thank you that he is the one who establishes a new people, the ones who will live ultimately in that renewed creation under your good rule. Uh, may this passage of Scripture move us to a deeper sense of wonder in who the Lord Jesus is, on that incredible feat of living a sinless life, resisting every temptation so that we could be saved and so that that sinlessness could be credited to our account through faith. Thank you for Jesus. Please, we pray, give us a deeper sense of wonder and joy in him every day as we wait for his return. Amen. Uh, Jesus